0: And welcome this week to Talking Flutes Extra with me, Jean Paul Wright. Keep those emails at flutepodcasts at gmail.com and social media messages coming in, as we always love to hear from you. And speaking about socials for a moment, earlier this year, in fact, when I think it was when lockdown in Europe began at the back end of March, I asked our social media audience to give me some suggestions on who would they like to hear as a podcast guest. As usual we had loads of people, ranging from Jasmine Choi and Paul Edmund Davis, through to Mike Mower, Stephen Clark, Barry Griffiths, aka Grizzly Flute, Ian Clark and loads more. Now I've mentioned to I've managed to work podcasts with nearly all of those four mentioned, and one particular lady's name popped up on more than one occasion. She is a multi-award winning composer and accomplished flutist living in Atlanta, USA. Completely at ease with a composer's pencil in her hand as well as the golden flute that she plays, she balances her time composing, teaching students, performing and, as we will find out in a minute, avoiding graphic design work as much as possible. She credits her wonderful husband, guitarist and composer Brian, with persuading her to take a leap into the wonderful and creative world she now inhabits. Some may call it the dark side, but I say it's a creative world. So I'd like to offer a warm Talking Flutes Extra podcast welcome this week to this is London Calling, London Calling. Hello and welcome Nicole Chamberlain. Hi. <laughs>
1: Hi, thanks for having me. You've <laughs> done some research. <laughs> <One>. <laughs> i don't know if all of that's just in my bio about uh especially about brian oh
0: uh, of course <laughs> uh, but also in your one of your youtube videos you did that's on your um your first one with the uh flute talk interview
1: oh okay
0: you, oh. you credit brian nice. with dragging you away from a certain area <laughs> of your life
1: how yeah, do, I mean, I, oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. Well, we're
0: doing this via Zoom, which is quite interesting, because normally when you when, when I do a podcast, it'd be audio. But it's much easier yeah. now. Now we can see people.
1: Yeah.
0: And Nicole sat there in this very busy room with a keyboard in front of her and her desk, uh, sorry, keyboard to the side of her and desk, obviously, in front yeah. of her, and loads and loads of books. And you know the frustrating thing with Zoom is that lots of people decide to have their Zoom calls in front of a bookshelf. And I find myself always looking at the, what books they read, but in your case, I can't see anything.
1: (laughs) Yeah. They're a little blurry. They're your typical music books. Like there's a lot of music history books and, you know, things from college and a few biographies mainly. It's my, my, my music nerd shelf really. I mean, I think there's a couple of books of fiction up there as well, but, um, the, the mainly just the stuff from that I need research and to be able to grab when I'm working on stuff like orchestration books.
0: You oh, got you. yeah. Yeah. So, so how have you been surviving this strange world we now inhabit?
1: Um this is actually the best circumstances for me, which I think is for most people it's it's harder to write in this environment. Um for me it's it's been great. I've been home all the time. I don't feel like I'm pulled in 100 directions typically I teach at like, I'll teach flute sectionals. So I'll go to different schools and teach. Um, I'll have students will come over. I actually go and teach private lessons at one um, school after school twice a week. And then I'm traveling on the weekends, typically uh, during the concert season. So it's been nice to be home. (laughs) And uh, my husband and I always joke Before this happened that we were going to move to a cabin in the woods because Atlanta, there's just so many people in Atlanta and uh, traffic's bad and you can't go in a store without it being packed. And so we've always kind of joked that we would just, we could do our jobs anywhere. Uh, and he is able to work from home from his job, and so it's been actually quite great to be home. He works downstairs, I work upstairs, and then we meet for lunch, and sometimes we're able to meet for dinner. It just depends on how late I'm teaching, and I can teach all my students online, which is, has been great, and the parents seem to like it because they don't have to drive their kids over, which in Atlanta is a big ordeal to have to drive anywhere. Uh and it's the only way you can get anywhere is driving because the public transportation is so um, terrible, for lack of a better word. Have you, been,
0: have you been locked down at all?
1: Uh, well, the state is not locked down, uh, which is a problem here. Uh, so I don't know if anybody uh, outside of the states really understands the issues with uh, with us is that a lot of the southern states seem to follow our particular political demographic. <laughs> And so uh, there's been a lot of pushback about wearing masks and staying home. I've been just staying home just because my husband has MS. And so we are very careful. Uh, And also, you know, like flutists and mini wind players and singers, like if you damage your lungs permanently, that could be career ending. So uh, we're not taking any chances and we're just staying home. My students seem to be fine with that. A lot of the schools, uh, schools starting up, and a lot of them have gone virtual for at least the first month. Uh, and then we're trying to figure out beyond that. Uh, there's even been like a lawsuit against, uh, from the governor of Georgia, against the mayor of Atlanta, about how she put forward a mask mandate. And uh, it's been, it's been tricky. <laughs> so I'm just just being very cautious uh but you know our cases are rising and it's insane uh, so i'm not i leaving
0: well i've, I've just put my, my, i've just to. put my i've just put my mask on as we talk <laughs> <laughs> Ma- mask i mean we've had lockdown we had lockdown for 12 weeks and yeah they released us and masks everywhere masks in the shops um but there is still is rising in europe again so um it's scary and it's I hate to say it, it's really, I mean, it's hit everybody. And the poor, was it now 650,000 people around the world that have lost their lives and the millions that have been affected Mm -hmm. by it. It's really, really hit the performing arts. It's really Mm -hmm. hit musicians, those that earn their money through performing. And Mm -hmm. it is, there seems to be no end in sight. It's, It's dreadful. And the governments don't really understand it. And that's what I really don't get. If even, even a look, I think I, I went on a rant last week about it in that uh, the gov- <laughs> we've all spent our time listening to music during lockdown. And as soon as we come out of lockdown, we don't think of the people that have actually made the music. So we try and support everybody else, but musicians are nomadic. You know, yeah. you have a project, we have a gig, you go to it and come back and you're working from week to week, month to month. And, uh, I would suppose it's just as hard in the US, if not harder, actually, with the different regulations and rules in different states.
1: Yeah, I mean, and there's even individual states that are requiring you, if you come into their state, like, for example, New York has been uh, one of the states where if you're traveling from a state like Georgia, you have to quarantine for two weeks. Mm -hmm. So even within our states, um, traveling can be hard i don't have to do that but i can see like as a domino effect so performers immediately felt the effects Mm -hmm. like everything got canceled uh as a composer i see i see where i'm starting my work is starting to drop off Mm -hmm. um you know i haven't had i've actually oddly enough have had one new commission come out of this because somebody wanted something to play together online there's talks of doing another one maybe soon but after like there is a stopping point where I have no prospects for no new, <laughs> new work so it's a little bit of a domino effect and I can see that if it if it goes on longer it might affect me a lot more than than it has uh, as far as but performers like that they, they've all been pretty hit hard if they have not had a healthy, Buildup up of studio students a lot
0: tough <laughs> yeah I'm hoping yeah. that uh, one of the vaccines will come out I know the whole world is working on vaccines and yeah <laughs> I think flute players and singers in particular in particular? flute players and singers in particular sure. have been particularly are you that word again God, pati- can't get more than one particular can you <laughs> <laughs> flutes and singers have been especially hit <laughs> because mm-hmm. of the use of their voice because let's face it, flute players just sing us anyway, aren't we? We're just projecting our air <laughs> stream somewhere different. Right. So the first real question I have is, who is Nicole Chamberlain? From 3D animation to composer, tell me a little about your journey.
1: Uh, it's a very unusual meandering journey. Uh, you know, the plan, as any plan is when you're a teenager, uh, you get, you make big plans, right? And my big plan was to get into animation. Uh, Originally it was 2d animation. So I did a lot of 2d animation in high school and traditional art. So I graduated high school in uh, 95. And so that's when computer animation was really starting to get some traction. Uh, so at the university of Georgia, they had started up a uh, 3d animation program that you could go through. And I started doing that because I couldn't seem to make it into the graphic design. Well, I don't know why I wanted to do graphic design. I guess it felt like it was more stable work than as an animator, which is hogwash. But anyway, so I did, I did the 3d animation and I got a music composition degree at the same time, um, which was a terrible idea. Uh, (laughs) Two of the most time consuming, uh majors where you have to actually sit down and think and and it's slow work um yeah it, i didn't really have much of a life in in college and i don't remember a lot of college <laughs> i feel like it was i was you know all my friends will tell me about x y and z event that they that we had and i i was like was i there they said no you were probably <laughs> working. working, somewhere. Um, so, so anyway, and that was the plan and, you know, life never works out the way you think it will. Um, and so I did actually get a job in, um, a children's multimedia company where I was actually writing music. It was a very small company. So it was like, like six people maybe where I was writing music and I was actually doing some web animation using flash. So that was more traditional 2d animation that didn't work out. (laughs) Eventually I needed to leave that. And it involved all sorts of crazy things like divorce and scandal and stuff. So I ended up feeling like that was a very toxic place for me to be in. Um, And so I left and I found a, uh, just, uh, I just needed a company where I could be in a normal, safe, regular kind of work environment. And I found one. Um, it was just supposed to get me through like six months until I could find another creative job. But I stayed there for five years because the people were so great. And we would like work really hard. And then we would all travel together every year. And it was it was really fun uh, place, even if the work was a little mundane kind of corporate work, but it, it kept me afloat for a number of years. Uh, and I just did web design and HTML coding for them, but then the company got bought out. So the atmosphere changed and people were uh, being let go and uh, it wasn't the same. And at this point, I had met Brian and uh, he was working at a another tech company, but was also a composition composer as as well. He was finishing up his uh, master's in composition at Georgia State. He didn't like the idea of himself being a full-time musician, that pressure, a little stifling for his creativity. And he loves his job. He still has that job. He's been there for almost 15 years, which is unusual to be at the same company in tech for that long. But he said, you're miserable. And I think you could do, you could do this full-time if you want to. Uh, He said, just quit. We'll figure it out. Um, which is uh, scary when you've had a very well-paying job that's been dependable uh, to launch into maybe your finances are wildly different from <laughs> month to month. Yep. <laughs> uh, and no, no one in my family had ever done that. My mom was a kindergarten school teacher. Uh, my dad was an army pilot. So we've always had financial security and so it was a little scary, but Brian's had quit. Uh, my, flute prof- my flute professor, my flute teacher, I started taking flute lessons by, with uh, Christina Smith from Atlanta Symphony. And she was like, just quit, uh, which is easy for her to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I had another friend who's an oboe player who was a graphic designer and he quit his job. He's like, just quit. You can do it. So I had an- enough people in my life just saying quit already. You're making us all miserable talking about it and we think you could do it. So I quit and it was the best. I mean, not the best day, but one of my top five days <laughs> in my life when I walked into my creative director, who I I liked a lot. He was a really fantastic person to work for. And I had to tell him I quit. And he said, you have to tell the boss, you know, the, the president. I'm not going to tell him. You oh, need to go in there and oh. say it. And it was a hard conversation. I, you know, I told him I was quitting and he said, why? And I said, well, I'm going to try to make this music thing a go. And he's like, so a raise isn't going to change your mind. Oh. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm, I'm taking a pay cut <laughs> um, to do this. And he's like, OK, well, you know, uh, we'd like to for you to stay as long as you can. But but yeah, I only gave him two weeks because I was ready to get out. But, you know, everybody was everybody in that Atlanta office was really great and I enjoyed working with them. Um, but it just, it just changed, you know, like things do when another company gets involved. Um, but it's been, it's been great ever since. Like I'll never, I don't ever want to have to go back. And I think at this point I've been out for too long to stay up with, to be relevant tech wise, you know, two years off is terrible. And I think I've been, I've been gone for like 11 years. So cracky. (laughs) i think i would basically be starting over because i think the iphone had just been released or was becoming more of a thing we had to worry about by the time i left and so mobile development is not something i know much about
0: i'm sure you would if you're tech i mean it's like riding a bike i'm sure once you're tech savvy (laughs) you're always tech savvy (laughs) (laughs)
1: Brian would say otherwise when he has to work with me in hardware
0: (laughs) yeah I know you're extremely loyal to your programs that you use having watched the opening video on your YouTube channel you've had some ups and downs and some very big doubts in your musical life haven't you how yeah how have you got through the lows and what advice do you have for any flutist doubting themselves and their ability And I know this is very personal, but there are so many people that I'm sure you come across and I come across that then doubt themselves. You obviously had that doubt when you made the jump.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's scary. I mean, I think I've been fortunate that I have family and friends that have been there to believe in me and lift me up. And, you know, people I've been able to talk to when I've gotten stuck
0: yeah, that's important. The, having the, having someone to talk to.
1: That has been very important. You know, my parents have been even though they have no idea about this <laughs> whole thing and it puzzles them. Um, you know, every time some sometimes even when my mom have come to a recital, they're just like, "What ha- when did this happen?" They don't they don't it just doesn't it doesn't register for them. Um and you know, my dad was always you know, I had some, just like my dad, just to give you an example, uh, you know, it's, it's going to make my mom mad because she's, you know, she's been the one that's been home all the time. And dad has had to always leave for work naturally, the nature <laughs> of his job. Um, But, you know, the few times dad's been home, you know, mom's like, okay, you get a parent for a while. But I had kind of a moment my senior year of high school where I, was coming onto college auditions and auditions had not been something I had excelled at at all, and I was really concerned that maybe I had chosen the wrong path because I was getting more rejections than acceptance. And Dad w- was trying to come up with solutions like, "Well, you're really good in biology. Maybe you can do that." And I was like, "No, I'm not. I'm barely <laughs> passing." And it just wasn't clueless. He just knew I was taking accelerated biology. Um, and I said, I just can't, I just, this is the only thing I know how to do. And apparently none of that great at it. And he said, well, I guess you better figure out how to make it work. And that's just been kind of advice I've taken. I mean, if this is what I want to do, it may not be the traditional path, but I've got to somehow cobble a life together doing <laughs> it. And so they've been great. You know, I picked, I finally got a spouse that's, uh, that has been my number one fan and very supportive and understands what I do. Um, and you know, the friends that have come from that have, uh, have been incredibly supportive, you know, and if I can shoot ideas off of them and, and, you know, even though I've lost you know, Dr. Wallen was my flu professor and he passed on and there was no one for me to talk to about those kind of things. There have been other people that have stepped into his place that I could always get out of a sticky bind uh, and and shoot ideas off of them. So for me, it's been uh, surrounding myself with uh, good people that have good head on their shoulders.
0: Because of all the fluctuations, did you listen to your head or your heart or mixture of both? What was, can you remember what was pushing you and what was pulling you?
1: Uh, it has to be both. I mean, I need. I mean, and that's how I write too. Is like you know, there's, there's things you want to do, but you have to be practical about it. You know, dream big, but then, then you have to get to the. You do have to worry about things like paying the mortgage. You know, <laughs> how is that going to happen? You know, I just can't live on a wing and a prayer. I really there has to be a solid foundation. Um, for me, you know, I needed some sense of predictability and i found that in having a a core set of students that i teach and that has been my baseline Uh, and now i'm able to kind of well i was uh, (laughs) able to rely on a lot of like sheet music sales like I, i know the fluctuations of of when my sheet music's selling and when it's not uh and i can kind of depend on some of that um i can get a guesstimate of how things are going um so it really does have to be a balance of the mm. two. Like you have to really love what you're doing and, and have big goals, but there has to be a, a practicality about going about doing it.
0: And on the practicality level, let's move on to the creative level, shall we? Okay. <laughs> right. Question for you on this one. And this is purely for my own benefit is how do you compose? And what is your process of creating gold from sand, diamonds from coal, and turning that first blob on a stick on that page into a story?
1: Uh, It depends on what I'm writing for. The process for me is very different depending on the circumstances. How I write for a solo flute piece will be very different than what I'm doing now, (laughs) which is writing for a bassoon concerto. There, there's levels of difficulty and, uh, and how I would address both of them. Naturally, I play the flute, so I would do a lot of improvising. That is usually the core of my composing, and that doesn't change really too much from what I'm writing for. Now, if I'm writing for flute, I will play on my flute. If I'm writing for bassoon, I might sing.
0: That's my phone going off, by the way. <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to keep going. <laughs> it's gone now don't worry
1: at some point both of my dogs will run in here and bark so that's even um, better (laughs) yeah it's just a matter of time (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that's my process a lot of improvising whether i use my flute or i just kind of sing it out uh i use the keyboard for uh pitch relevancy because sometimes i'll drift Mm-hmm. and so that will keep me in the correct key if i'm singing because i'm not the best singer so um as any of my sight singing teachers can attest to and and then i just i just start putting it on the page uh you just i think there has to be a kind of reckless abandonment when you first start to put things on the page and don't don't judge you just put it on the page and then as things start to get a little bit more lengthy and more materials on the page, then you can start editing and make some more critical decisions. But initially it's just slap whatever, whatever garbage on the page. Uh, you could always throw it out. You
0: <laughs> do you know? feel, do you feel a narrative in a single line? Or can you begin to get a feel in a complex rhythm and the sounds from the get-go?
1: It depends uh i'm i'm usually a linear person uh horizontal linear so um i'm usually driven by more melodic lines sometimes it'll be rhythmic driven as well usually it starts as a melodic line and then i hook onto a rhythm and then it becomes a little more parallel the harmonies for me are always last i think it's just the nature of how i learned music as a flutist that i was singular lined and I was never a pianist. My husband thinks differently because he's a guitarist. So he tends to be more harmonically and rhythm-based. And then he'll add on the melody or find one in it. So we just come from two different places. And I, from my experience, you can kind of figure out how someone started out as a musician based on how they approach writing. And, but for me, it's it's the finding the harmonies is usually close to last
0: <laughs> is it almost like animation you sort of build up the layers and you build up the movement yeah afterwards. yeah
1: I mean I've never thought about that but yeah I mean you start with the, <laughs> the action and then do the backgrounds and then colored in I mean it's very like that I've always more felt like it was for me it was more like sculpting yeah I just started with the block of whatever and then just started whittling and editing down because there's a lot of editing that I do when I write So what I write might be pretty basic and humdrum and boring, um, but I have to go back and, well, what would make this less boring? What would make this more unpredictable? What would help this from being too repetitive? You know, and a lot lot of that's changing the timbre and doing the extended techniques and changing the rhythms up and the time signatures, you know, to keep it from being too predictable, but, but interesting.
0: So it's a developing process, unlike someone like Michelangelo, who would say that the, the creation is actually within the block of marble, that he's just getting out. With you, it is an evolving entity.
1: Well, I mean, it's similar in, in, in a way. I mean, I'm sure there's something in there, but for me, it's more of a discovery. I don't always have a plan. And I, I try to go with, I try to keep an open mind. Like my, what I think should happen may not go as planned and being open to those changes sometimes can lead you to a better place than you had originally planned. Uh, So just try to keep open mind, open-minded. And I think that's part of the improvisation part is that you may play a certain line and someone comes back at you with an answer and you're like, Oh, well, I was going to do this, but now I'm going to do that in response to what happened. So there's a reactionary process, I think, to my writing, even though I'm reacting to what I've written But today, Nicole is different than yesterday, Nicole, and she makes a lot of changes.
0: Yeah. Are you you ever happy or are you like a typical composer? Not.
1: No, I'm not. I don't think I'm typical. I I get that a lot. I think people tell me that, (laughs) tell me that mainly like, (laughs) people tell me uh, a lot of people's impression after they've talked to me, I get this a lot is like, oh, you're kind of normal. I mean, I don't know how to take that. I don't, I don't feel like, I don't know. I mean, I meet a lot of other composers as well. And some of them are really fantastic, wonderful people. And some people are just very unique and different. Maybe it's because, you know, I grew up as a performer first.
0: What's it like when you hear one of your compositions being performed? I mean, is it difficult to not look on it critically if the musical narrative of the piece is not quite what you intended?
1: For me, it's um, if someone has prepared a piece diligently, I rarely find problems with anything. I've gone to performances where people have played it in the wrong key (laughs) or not done any of the extended techniques. Just chosen not to do them. Oh, I can't do them. So I didn't do them. And I was like, well, there's a lot of other amazing music out there. You don't have to play mine if it's not your thing. That's fine. And that's, that's for me when it's hard, but people's interpretations, I always find fascinating. Like maybe they've emphasized something more than I thought it should be. Uh, And Usually I just see it in a different light and I find that fascinating. So I love hearing different people's interpretations of things, uh, especially if they've tried their best to be true to what's on the page as far as technique and just being musically prepared. But interpretations are, are great. Uh, and, you know, and a lot of people will ask me um, some people ask me questions and I appreciate those. What bothers me is when people were uncertain about something and they didn't ask. And I'm like, I'm sitting right here like you can ask me. I'm glad to do, I mean, I make mistakes like anybody else, uh, so if there's something in question, you know, let me know. But for me, it's the best part of composing is hearing someone play your music. Like, it's, it makes it real. And um, it has been upsetting, because sometimes people will commission stuff, and this, I know, seems really crazy every time I say this, is someone will commission something with no intent of ever performing it. And will not include me in that uh realization like they just wanted their name on a piece of my music um and that's that's super hard because I won't know the intent until down the road which so you know I have a contract that says you lose premiere rights after a certain period of time which is usually a year but it that's that's the hardest part for me like it's You know, getting paid to do this is great, but the best part is getting a performance. And so when that doesn't happen, that's that's a hard part. So I rather I rather just hear the thing. That's the best part of writing. And I think John Mackey, he's a a band composer here in the States. He was wearing his Apple Watch and someone was premiering a piece of his and his heart rate was so fast that uh, his alarm was going off on his Apple Watch to let him know his heart rate was way high. And it, it's it's exhilarating. I mean, I I feel the same way too when I hear um, something, especially something that I've put a lot of time into. Do
0: you get to feel that, double? Do you get to feel double the emotion when it's really getting to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's been uh, you know, it's just it's just amazing to me that people would invest so much time and money and heart into something that you wrote. <laughs> Uh, that's amazing to me that someone would have that much faith in you and and generally without a lot of pushback
0: but you're a descriptive Um, writer and we'll speak about that in a moment you're very (laughs) you 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 bring modern day life onto the page and off the page one area that really interests me nicole (laughs) (laughs) yeah we're laughing because i just i just forgot the word is improvisation why are Mm -hmm. we and i say we most of us scared of improvisation
1: Uh, It's a lack of control. (laughs) It's the fear of messing up. I find that is mainly the case with, I mean, if you talk to, you know, you've talked to, to other flutists, especially Mm. like the fear of making a mistake is real and being judged for that. There's a lot of anxiety for that. I think you have to be a risk taker to, to improvise. And it's just, you feel like, and I think there's also too much, Emphasis on being a composer, like it's this elevated thing. Um, and you know, that's part of why uh, Valerie Coleman and Amanda Harberg and I have started like the flute speakeasy is to try to help people get over that fear. So, we we started the flute speakeasy Uh, as Valerie's idea. She called she wrangled uh, Amanda and I into it about. Getting flutists comfortable with writing and creating and improvising their own music and to take kind of the mystique away from it. You know, everybody's trained enough as a musician at this point in their lives uh, to start making up stuff and then editing it and writing. And we want to encourage that to get a a more diverse uh, set of voices into the rep.
0: You're exactly right. I mean, we, we don't have a set script when we talk to each other. So mm-hmm. we in effect improvise, yet put a flute in front of us or a musical instrument and our brain goes all mashed.
1: That fear of failure is really big monster.
0: Yeah. It, it is and what is failure? It's just an opinion of one person <laughs> or, or, <laughs> or a group of failures. It's a perception isn't it? And I'm sure I like and, I'm, it. and I'm sure if Mr. Bach or Mr. Mozart was around here they would both be doing what you do which is bringing modern day reality to your compositions in other words you don't just stick with a blob and the blob represents a note you look beyond that you look beyond what is deemed to be a boundary and then you say okay how can I get beyond that boundary and the use of extended techniques now that extended techniques as we know for a flute is not unusual but you tend to sort of push the edges to bring more out in the narrative of your compositions don't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I have my professors to thank for that. Uh, My composition professor was, uh, my main one uh, was Dr. William Davis, and uh, he was a bassoonist. Uh, He enjoyed extended techniques, and he badgered me constantly about incorporating them in my music. And I was still trying to figure out how to write anything with any kind of structure. Um, and so it wasn't really until much later, all the things he had been telling me all those years started to process a little bit more. Um, I just had to wrangle how to write the basic with the basic rules before I started stretching them, I guess. So I started training flute extended techniques and all extended techniques like string players to address bowing. Uh, It's not their, the way they bow or use their bow or pluck their strings is not extended technique. It's just, it's just technique. Uh, And I've always had that jealousy of string players. And so I wanted to incorporate that into uh, how I wrote, you know, and extended techniques wasn't necessarily taught as part of standard flute playing. When I was in college, Dr. Wallen introduced me to things like uh, Robert Dick's music uh, and then I was in contemporary chamber ensemble where I was exposed to other things, other pieces and other composers. Like we had George Crumb come in and Joan Tower and Charles Warnon. And so when I got out of school, I wanted to apply what I'd learned with extended techniques and how to write and put it more into my own voice. And Greg Patillo had a huge impact in that. Ian Clark did as well. Ian Clark came to Atlanta and so did Greg Patillo, And I did workshops with them. Uh, and I took those new sounds that I was learning how to produce and, and try to put it in the way I would I would write um, you know uh, So those are really uh, some big influences and in, in how I, how I write today.
0: Well you've written so many pieces, but I'd like to just capture a few of them based around the names that you call them, which are really really interesting and probably a part of your personality. I'd like to talk firstly about asphyxia for solo flute.
1: Yeah, asphyxia is, is, is kind of a turning point for me, I feel like, professionally. Um, I signed that contract when my husband was in the hospital. He, was, uh, he had a brain aneurysm uh, and was one of the fortunate few fortunate people that survived it. But we were in, he was in the hospital for like a month. Um, and I basically lived there with him. And so I didn't know, again, that practicality. Like, am I the breadwinner now? Because that's insane. Because uh, I didn't know how he was going to come out on the other side of it. And so I was just, I was not turning down any work. And this piece for Asphyxia came from the Oklahoma Flute Society. And they wanted something for their artist—the lat the final round of their young artist competition. And so... The thing that had I played with a group called Perimeter Flutes, and we'd all started getting more interested in study techniques. And we'd found the more that we had done it, the more we were out of breath. But it pushed our athleticism and it made us better players. So I wanted to apply that in a piece. Um, and so we were all familiar when we first started playing flute that we were very dizzy. But that dissipates as you get stronger. But we are finding we we're experiencing those kind of symptoms again. Uh, with all these extended techniques and so I wanted to push that envelope so maybe it was because I was around hospital terms <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was because of all the playing and maybe it's that time of my life where I was writing that piece where like I was I was trying to get some air any way I could you know but it's, its main goal was to be a very athletic, challenging piece for those uh, young artists. Um, and I knew a lot of them were going to be people that were far better players than I am. And I thought I'd never play the thing. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> but I play it quite often now. Um, I had to play it in an uh Was it last year? Yeah, last year. And uh, stand up in front of all of your big flute heroes and, and play that thing. It's my first time working with Valerie Coleman, and she's sitting right there, you know, helping me put my music on my music stand. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, this is a very surreal, surreal moment. But, yeah, that's that's what I was trying to convey was just a very athletic piece to help push people's limits as a player.
0: And that's cool. You know, hopefully s- have it be fun. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I th- certainly think it takes you from one extreme to the other with... Mm-hmm. There's lots of depth, and now you've described the situation you're in, gives an additional narrative. And that's Asphyxia by Nicole Chamberlain. Yeah. Right. A little favorite of mine, because it's where, for Piccolo a Music Box. It's called Lily Yeah,
1: they're hanging up on the wall here. I saw
0: the, so the music box. Yeah. I wasn't That exp- one's the Lily
1: Pushing one, and that one's for a guitar piece I wrote that has, has it in a, uh, a different scroll.
0: Tell me about that, because that. That is so different from asphyxia. (laughs) It's almost as far (laughs) the opposite directions you could get.
1: Yeah, it's it's because of the fascination of these things. I think musicians and composers, I mean, I guess composers are musicians. I don't mean to separate them. (laughs) If you like what you do, you're always curious about unusual things that come across your... uh, your eyeline, this music box gadget, uh, where you could write your own pieces for music box. It just, that was amazing. And it just started out as the curiosity. And it was basically something I wrote in an afternoon. Cause it's just real small. The two things are really small. So uh, there's some, some rules with it, which I always enjoy rules. That music box is just diatonic. And so you, there's not a lot of chromaticism in it. So you have to stay within a certain language and a certain range. And then after I wrote the thing, found out, oh, it's not in the key of C. And I hadn't bothered to check that out before I started (laughs) writing. So when I went to hit record, I had done the music box first. And I'm so paranoid about my piccolo playing that I went to play with the music box, I thought I was the problem. Turns out it's not in C, I forget which key it's in. I think it's A flat, I'm not not 100% sure. It's been so long. And so I just felt like two small instruments, the music box is kind of a toy, the piccolo can sound like a toy. They're both really small. You know, my sister is a high school English teacher, so sometimes literature comes up. So I thought naming it after Lilliput was a a good title for the piece for uh, some small instruments.
0: And it's so sweet to listen to, so gentle and so sort of lilting. It's lovely. And if we move to a very, very different piece, Nonsense. Oh, God. (laughs) Now, Nonsense got me. It, It got me from the first time I listened to it by the, is it Duo Rossignol?
1: yeah Yeah, uh, it's dr mary matthews and hillary labonte that
0: got me straight away and just because it is interactive Mm -hmm. it is a visual almost interrogation between sort of singer singer and flutist and sometimes the flute player is playing the whole flute sometimes they're playing the head joint and the singer is sort of interacting visually with the flutist and i love the old the last movement because that reminded me of me an old man with flute (laughs) (laughs) tell me about this whole thing because it just it wound me in not only the name but the whole thing sort of i couldn't stop watching it
1: well it wasn't my idea to write the thing uh you know like most things you're asked to write something i work with uh dr mary matthews a lot we're very good friends she's been an unfortunate witness to a lot of my shenanigans (laughs) and mishaps and usually ends up playing a lot of things we've done an album together we've gone to the grand canyon together where i didn't have a sleeping bag uh we've she's been she was at the memphis flute festival when my insides exploded and i ended up in the hospital for five days which she's like the person to have in a hospital turns out so you know it's just one of these people that you find people in your life and uh, if you're lucky and you work with them and you're friends with them and and she's one of those very few people but she and Hillary work a lot together her and Hillary were at uh, I think they were at Peabody together Um, and so they've loved working with each other ever since and Hillary's amazing (laughs) by the way it all it all kind of came up uh, they were Playing uh, this Kate Soper piece together, um, the words themselves, only the words themselves mean what they say. I, I get that title mixed up. It's a fantastic piece. I don't know if you've ever heard it. It incorporates piccolo, low flutes, and sea flute, and there's a lot of interaction and acting together. And I was very inspired by that piece um, and they wanted it on the same program. So it had to kind of bridge some gaps that they were doing. And I needed some text that I could get a hold of fairly easily and nonsense. These collections of pieces by Edward Lear, which are in public domain, he has some volumes called Nonsense and they just make zero sense. And there was things about the flute in it. The words were crazy. The imagery was great. And knowing Hillary and Mary, they would sell it because if you, there is no acting in it, it it really is odd. My favorite movement is the one with just the head joint. Mary wanted something that was fairly simple after playing the Kate Soper, and I was like, okay. Turns out that's the hardest one to play that with just the head joint because you're trying to stay in pitch, you know. And
0: mirror, a and mirror and mirror the soprano, yeah. Almost the mirror the yeah the dialogue
1: yeah and hillary's got a couple of times in there where she's like why would you do this thing? Um. <laughs>
0: remember the grand canyon <laughs> right you owe me right. Nicole. you owe me Nicole. right
1: remember the hospital remember what i had to do for you there <laughs> and there's actually a um, another piece called more nonsense uh that was supposed to be premiered at the japan low flutes festival in march So we're trying to figure out how to get that one premiered when things get back to normal and Hillary and Mary are going to do, do that as well. We were all going to go to Japan together. So that's a little disappointing. So there's actually going to be a volume two of nonsense.
0: I I would strongly recommend anybody. everybody looks at (laughs) nonsense by Nicole Chamberlain. It's just, it is, it's not nonsense. It is addictive viewing because you don't know what's coming up next. And there is this eye And visual dialogue, as well as a bit of acting by the soprano. It's fascinating. Fascinating writing. And so is the naming of each piece. I mean, you've got fisticuffs for flute, duo and percussion. Now, fisticuffs would normally mean two people having a fight, wouldn't it? Right. How (laughs) did you come up with the name fisticuffs?
1: (laughs) So as an animation major, I had to take a lot of film history And so I really got sucked into 40s slang and the old noir stuff. You know, I love the terminologies. They're so odd. And I'm sure our own jargon and and slang will be odd to people in, you know, 60 years. So it was written for a group called Chamber Cartel, who I have a healthy hate relationship with, uh, (laughs) with the percussionists. I mean, it's just, it's just he's he's a fun guy but you know just like anything we we get on each other's nerves and we're pretty open about it like he he knows and i know i get on his nerves but it was all in good fun i mean it's always in good fun we like to just see how far we can get the other one to the brink of anger so it was a piece for me and teresa Feliciano. And Olivia Kiefer, who's a composer as well. And you should check out her music, who's a percussionist. And Caleb Heron, who's the, uh, the director of Chamber Cartel. So it was all good fun. It was a blast to put together. And it's kind of opposing forces between a flute and percussionist and another flute and percussionist and how they kind of work against each other. And sometimes, you know, when you get knocked in the head, there, there is a moment of where you're like, where am I? So there's, there's some of that in the piece as well
0: yeah you can definitely feel the force (laughs) the jedi warrior was required i think (laughs) and to and and there is so many you've written nicole um and one of my favorites and uh is percolate i i really like percolate purely because a it's very hard but b there is a percolate to me always means coffee so I have I either have, uh, espressos and espressos or I percolate a coffee. Mm-hmm. And you have a re- very good, uh, sort of a wonderful video of this played uh, on the Flutes by C, course by Viviana, the lovely Viviana Guzman. And uh, mm-hmm. I've forgotten the other two flute players. Tell me about percolate because that is a beautiful piece. Uh,
1: it was a piece that I was never going to write. Uh, it was for a competition and I don't do that. Doing competitions is so, so hard, especially, especially when they want a piece that has never been performed before. And that's what they wanted. And I was like, I don't have time. It's great, but I don't know. I mean, I probably won't get picked. And then I guess I'll have to play it. If I want to write a hard piece, I don't want to have to play it later. I just decided, well, I should just do it anyway. It won't take me long. You know, it's a short piece. It's for three flutes. It should go, go pretty easily. And what if it got performed by these incredible flute players? And it did. Viviana Guzman, Andrea Fisher, who's Fluter Scooter, and Alice K. Dade played it uh, and, and, and did a fantastic job of it. And I can't I couldn't believe it It won. But yeah, that, that was a, a huge boost as well. And it led to a commission... For a piece for three flutes and a string orchestra at a, in a South Korean uh, flute festival uh, for for all of them. Another piece called Olympus. And they did an amazing job there, too. So it's it's it was something I didn't feel like doing, but peer pressure got the better of me. A couple of my friends were like you should just do it. You have time. It won't take you long. We'll play it if they don't do it. And I'm like okay, so I wrote it because again, all that matters to me is if it gets performed. I don't want to write stuff and then shelve it.
0: Yeah, and mm-hmm. I suppose being a composer, that that is all you want. You want your mm-hmm. music to be out there, but you don't just write for flute. You now write for everything. As you began this interview with saying you've got a bassoon concerto you're writing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how yeah. much how much research do you have to do with regards to the bassoon because it's an incredibly difficult instrument, isn't it?
1: It is. I mean, uh, when you're writing for an instrument you don't play for, there is a lot of research I personally like to do. I like to listen to a lot of the rep. I like to listen to what's already out there as far as modern rep to see if there's something missing. I talk to friends that play the instrument. I talk to the person that's going to perform the instrument. I try to get that pretty early on, so I make sure I'm not writing something out of their wheelhouse or something they just hate to do. And get their personal feelings about how writing for bassoon should be handled. So communication with people is, is key in the beginning. For me, the search that goes before, like uh, luckily I was writing something else and I was listening to bassoon stuff and talking bassoon stuff. So by the time I finished the previous commission, I could start the bassoon concerto without a lot of lag time between writing. Um, or feeling like I was listening to other people's music as I was writing, because yeah, that, that can be dangerous as well, you know.
0: So to date, in your still tender years, has been all about communication, whether it's been visual communication, as in 3D or web design, to now narration and performance. It is just about communicating, not to yourself, but to a wider audience. And you also publish your own music. Right. How do people find your music, Nicole?
1: (laughs) Well, uh, they can come to my website, N I K K I N O T E S N-I-K-K-I-N-O-T-E-S.com, or spottedrocket.com. Spottedrocket.com has my stuff and my husband's stuff as well. And it's in a lot of flu retailers carry it if you want the printed version. So what I send out is a PDF uh, because I'm lazy. I don't want (laughs) to do too much of the stapling and binding because I do all that. That's the... uh, that's the printer right there. Yeah, can I one question? <laughs> one question
0: there. How do you get the staples in the right place?
1: Oh, uh, I have a stapler that I can show you right here. Just,
0: uh, ah, so that goes long r- stapler. Goes right into the middle of the uh, paper, does it? Yep. Yeah, if it's yep, so me, I'm it would by wonky. Ah.
1: Well, I eyeball it. You get better at it if you've done a few of them. So it's not exact, but it, it does the job. But like flute retailers, like Flute World has it, Carolyn Nussbaum, and in the UK, Just Flutes mm-hmm. has it as well. Some of my stuff, not everything, but... So that's been fun that it's now overseas. Well, um, it
0: should be, yeah. because you... You know, we've all heard of Robert Dick, we've all heard of Ian Clark, and Nicole, your music also transcends the boundaries, and as you say if you drop your guard and you give yourself permission to not make mistakes because as we say we can't make mistakes because it's an interpretation and just go for it and yeah. your music then becomes accessible and it may be difficult but we all need a we all need to be we all need to push ourselves and not necessarily stay in the comfort zones because as you say once you've learned the rules it's time to push those boundaries and as mm-hmm. I said earlier, I'm sure Mr. Bark and Mr. Mozart would also be doing jet whistles, death rattles, beatboxing, percussive tonguing, and all these extended stuff that you put into your music. So it's been wonderful, absolutely wonderful talking to you. And thank you for taking the time out on this.
1: No, it's, this. it's great to have some uh, human interaction outside
0: the house. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever, ever cross-fertilise with your... That's probably the wrong words to say. Do you ever sort of cross compose with your husband?
1: I don't know, not deliberately. We talk about stuff. I We obviously listen to each other's mm. things. I hear him practicing. I hear him writing. I know he hears me writing. I play things for him, just sometimes because when you play it for someone else, you get a little more critical of your writing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sure we influence each other. It's just maybe sometimes not obvious. But yeah, I think uh, I think his love of heavy metal sometimes does creep into my writing. <laughs>
0: But you keep musicians on their feet with your compositions, and that's important. There's no hiding place with your music, is there?
1: No, it's out there. It's on black and white paper. Like, you did it, so.
0: Yeah, there's lots of blobs on sticks and other notations. (laughs) So how does your day pan out? Do you have it planned, or do you you just say, okay, I've got to do some work. It will happen when creatively is right.
1: No, the, the kind of rule of thumb is, uh, and I forget who said it, if it was a teacher or like some famous person, you know, don't wait for inspiration. Make sure inspiration finds you working. So I try to work every day. Uh, You know, even you learn stuff, even from the garbage that you write, you learn, well, I'm not going to do that. There's something to be gained from everything. So like I give myself permission to write garbage. And when you give yourself that permission, you find the good stuff in it.
0: You haven't called called a piece garbage yet, have you?
1: Trash Panda might be in the worst. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see. Uh, But yeah, my day is pretty, pretty fluid. I usually just get up, walk the dogs, uh, exercise to get this stuff done first so that everybody leaves me alone. Uh, And then I'll usually write if I can until my first student of the day, which is usually in the afternoon. So these days it's pretty routine. But when I'm also teaching in schools and traveling, it gets, it gets a little more challenging to plan it. But uh, I just sit down and write. I just make it, it's my job. So i sit down like it's my job and, and get to work
0: well you can find nicole everywhere on social media under nikki notes n-i-double-k-i-n-o-t-e-s it sounds like a mickey mouse type of uh, disney m-i-c-k well,
1: yeah that's uh you know that's the animation side i think you know, <laughs> disney disney was the uh ultimate job as an animator back in back in the day and that was Part of the original plan, and then I realized that that was very restrictive.
0: So who who would have known that you could have been working for Pixar now rather than writing all these beautiful, beautiful pieces? How life would have been different for you?
1: Oh, good, yeah, it would have been really crazy different.
0: Nicole, thank you so much, and. The all uh, for all our listeners, you won't actually know this, but Nicole's been smiling throughout the interview. She's obviously a really happy lady, and I've yet to meet a composer that seems to be always happy. I'm sure she will say that that she has her moments.
1: Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I think Brian would say that too. I think Mary would say that. My parents definitely would say it. <laughs> uh, you know, this is this is the happiest part of my life is as being a musician, and that was the thing when I quit my job. I had two weeks to work at that job and I wasn't allowed to tell anybody I was quitting. That was pretty much company policy. You said goodbye the day you were leaving and you couldn't tell anybody until that point. I don't know why that rule was there. I'm sure they had their reasons. But I remember a co-worker in the graphic design department, and he was like, you're so much happier. What What's happened? And I was like, nothing. And then that last day, he was like, oh, that's why you're happy. And I've been it's been so much better since change of life.
0: There's a lot to learn from speaking to your, about your experiences, Nicole. So thank you. Nicolechamberlain.com is your website. Uh,
1: Nikki notes.com. But I think Nicolechamberlain.com gets you there too. I think Brian set it up. So that happens. Yeah. I
0: think it's a forwarding domain name. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Check this wonderful lady out. And certainly follow her on social media because she's very interactive and always comments and always replies. So it's very with the now. Nicole, thanks again for joining us on Talking Flutes Extra. And thank you, everybody, for listening. May your week ahead be musically fulfilling and your jet whistle practice doesn't annoy the neighbours. Goodbye, all.